0: Last week, we closed out the Hard Sayings of Jesus series with a message on if you don't hate your mother, father, children, your own life, then you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, he really said it, and uh, he meant it in the sense that we are not to love anyone uh, above Jesus. And so uh, he does not want us to actively hate our family or even ourselves. Uh, but was speaking in uh, hyperbole to paint that picture. That we're to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the greatest commandment. We also looked at some diagnostics to assess idols in our lives. Where is our money? Where are our thoughts? What are we obsessing over? What frustrates us that shouldn't? Those kinds of things to identify the idols we might have set up in our hearts. Today we kick off our summer series in Hebrews called True and Better, where we'll spend the next 10 weeks or so looking at the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Uh, We know it's to the Hebrews because of the context, but also because the earliest manuscripts included to the Hebrews. We don't see that in our modern um, translations, but it was in the earliest manuscripts. It was actually titled to them. So it's a letter written to Jewish Christians who uh, have been displaced. They're all spread around and who more than likely were facing persecution and pressure to revert back to Judaism. And so that kind of points us to the theme and the purpose of what uh, the author is showing us in the the book or the letter to the Hebrews. The author is unknown to us, um, though candidates include Paul, Silas, Clement of Rome, Apollos, Luke, Barnabas, even Priscilla, and others. There's a lot of theories about who wrote Hebrews. Determining the authorship is not the purpose of our series, uh, however, so uh, our focus is going to be on Jesus as the true and better version of the types and shadows that came before him. Throughout history, as God has interacted with his people, he has sent placeholders and temporary substitutes which pointed to Christ as the fulfillment of his plan for redemption. And as great as many of them were, they all fell short of the supremacy of our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews dives into how Jesus is the true and better prophet, priest, and king who came to seek and save the lost, being both just and the justifier, creator, savior, sustainer. Today, we just dip our toes into the water of the overarching theme of Christ as the true and better, the final and perfect form of who and what has come before him. And today, just four verses as the introduction of Hebrews points to Christ as our true and better prophet, priest, and king. Future messages for the rest of the series are going to take a look at much longer um, sections of text, much bigger chunks of scripture. But to set the table for the next several weeks, here is Hebrews 1, verses 1 through He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the letter begins by painting a picture of comparison from way back when to nowadays, nowadays as the time of writing of the letter. It's not quite a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away or back in my day we used to do this or that, but it sets a clear division between the former and the present, the contemporary, again, as of the writing of the letter. So there's a chronological aspect to the contrast the author is presenting to us, but it won't just be an advance in form or medium. As we'll see, the advance is from incomplete, insufficient shadow to perfect, full, sufficient, and final completion in Christ. For perspective, consider William Shanks, a 19th century mathematician who spent his entire life calculating the digits of pi. He successfully calculated the first 527 digits and then found another 180 digits, which turned out to be wrong, but still pretty impressive for 1873, but then in 1958, a computer, Calculated the same number of digits in less than a minute. And then calculated another 10,000 digits, all without error. So less than 100 years after Shanks's life work was complete, even though it was with error, a computer did the exact same thing in less than a minute and then went above and beyond and another... 10,000 digits beyond him. This is the kind of extreme comparison that unfolds when Christ enters the chat. All previous, even very impressive versions pale in comparison to the former, to the latter, sorry. And the first progression I want to look at is with regard to Jesus as prophet. Jesus is the supreme prophet. Long ago, we read, God spoke by the prophets in many times and in many ways. God the Father has made himself and his expectations known to people through visions, dreams, loud and quiet voices, special manifestations of his presence via smoke or fire, etc. And he's used people as his messengers. These people were the prophets of old, passing on messages from God the Father to the world. This is how humanity came to know God's name, I Am or Yahweh. This is how humanity came to know God's law and God's love. He warned of judgment. He offered second chances. He told his people how to live for him, all through the prophets of, quote-unquote, long ago. But, as we read, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This carries the implication that there is final authority in communication through Jesus, the son, the final prophet, to top all previous prophets. Prophets. Not that he is negating what any of the previous prophets said, but when Jesus speaks, we're getting direct communication from God. There is zero aspect of I'm just the messenger in this. You know when kids don't like or respect the message they get from one parent, so they wait until they hear it from the other parent? Or is that just maybe in in our house, right? Like you might tell them something, they're like, "Mm, Mom, and they'll ask and see what she has to say as kind of the final authority There's no aspect of that here where people could doubt or question the prophets of old. When Jesus showed up and affirmed what the previous prophets had declared and also began proclaiming things about the father and his kingdom directly, people who believed in him as the son could not say, well, let me wait and see what the father says and compare that to what you're telling us. Jesus spoke for the father and never got it twisted, never circumvented the father's authority, never sugarcoated anything or went too heavy handed with the message. Because he and the Father are one. So when Jesus spoke, they heard directly from God. If the prophets of before were how people knew God the Father, then in Christ, we have the full revelation of the Father. Verse 3 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Our call to worship from Colossians said he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible, The word imprint here in Hebrews is like that of a stamp where the mold or the tool carries and transfers the exact image. So in Christ, the exact person or character, divinity, holiness, love, righteousness, omniscience, omnipotence, etc., all of that of the Father is present in Christ. In John 14, when Philip told Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus replied with, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No other prophet could say this. This is why the author conveys the supremacy of Jesus as ultimate prophet to the Hebrews. Because they were familiar with the prophets of long ago. They knew God spoke through the prophets. They staked their lives on what God said through his messengers. So in this letter, there is no mistaking. We can stake our lives on knowing and following God the Father by knowing and following Jesus the Son. Secondly, we see Jesus presented in these verses as the supreme priest. Jesus is the supreme priest. Again, it helps us to understand Jesus as supreme priest when we understand that God's people need a priest at all. Priests were introduced in the Old Testament to serve as mediators between God and man because no one can approach God on their own. He is too holy, too righteous, too other, and man is marred by sin. Sin prevents fellowship with God. So, God introduced purification and atonement and sacrifices and ceremonies whereby men could be declared clean for a time in order to present themselves acceptable before God. But here in Hebrews 1, 3, we read that Christ made purification for sins. And in following chapters, we'll look at this in more detail. But In these four introductory verses, we see Jesus, the Son, making purification, which is something priests were needed for in the long ago of before. And we know Jesus is the supreme priest from this simple description, because after he made purification, he sat down at the Father's right hand. Sitting down is for finishers. Coasting is for when the job is done. I remember seeing, and again, this is just how my brain works, Uh, I remember seeing Premium Rush with Joseph Gordon-Levitt a little over a decade ago, terrible movie, Um, but one thing that caught my attention, it's about bike messengers in New York, but then, oh, this message is wanted by the bad guys, that kind of thing, and so it's this adrenaline rush through the streets of New York on his bike. One thing that caught my attention is that the messengers use fixed gear bikes, So a fixed-gear bike means that if the back wheel is turning, the pedals are turning. There's no, like, you know how you get going, you're like, I'm going to take a little rest, give my legs a little rest, and just, like, sit still as the bike keeps going. There is none of that in a fixed-gear bike. There's no coasting, there's no free-pedaling backward, like with a multi-gear bike. So if you're moving, you're pedaling. And there's a few reasons this type of bike is preferred by the messengers, but one reality of the fixed-gear bike is that there is no rest until the job is complete. It's a motivator for the messengers and a way to boost productivity. Jobs like this make this concept really clear. Teachers, nurses, moms, the security guard from that one episode of Seinfeld. You don't sit much, if at all, until the job is done. And often the job is never done. Jesus sat because the work was completed. To quote him yet again on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. Well, what exactly was finished? The purification ceremony to end all purification ceremonies. The once and for all final sufficient sacrifice needed to make sinners presentable to a holy God. Jesus, in laying down his life, shed the blood needed to cover our sin. In laying down his life, he paid the debt, satisfied the curse, and the requirement of the law, extending to us forgiveness. By his death, we are forgiven, and by his resurrection, we gain new life. So Jesus serves as both the priest and the sacrifice, the mediator and the medium by which we are purified. The fact that he is not simply officiating a ceremony and applying some other purification to us makes him the ultimate offering and mediator. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, Paul wrote, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The author of Hebrews is communicating the same thing. Jesus got the job done. There is no other priest needed to follow him and be our go-between. We have direct access to the Father through the Son. But not only is Jesus the supreme prophet and supreme priest, he's also the supreme king. Jesus is the supreme king. There is an elevation of our standing before God in this truth. Jesus as priest makes us acceptable before God and reconciles us to fellowship with him. But this final point, Jesus as supreme king, points to the, the upgrade in our relationship with God by faith. As I often talk about here at Missio Day, that the gospel doesn't just take us from negative to neutral, right? It's not just a reset to uh, we're indebted to uh, start over. It takes us from indebted to blessed, fully inheriting the full riches that belong to Jesus Christ. Not just from negative to neutral, but all the way positive. And so there's this super abundant blessing that comes with becoming a child of God by faith in Christ. This is what we see in the supreme kingship of Jesus. Verse 2 here in chapter 1 says that Jesus was appointed the heir of all things, Verse 4 speaks of his name being excellent and above. These truths point to the rights and royalty of Jesus as king of kings. God's people have an interesting history with kings. From requesting one when they didn't need one, to then picking the one the world would have valued instead of the one God valued, to being led by a string of good, bad, wicked, everything in between, to eventually being promised a king whose kingdom would never end. If we are to be citizens of God's kingdom, we need to know and follow the right king. It's the king's rule and reign we're told to seek. So acknowledging the rightful heir to the throne is in our best interest. But far too often, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament and people throughout history, we either exalt a false king or try to disregard the need for a king at all. Like Boromir, who tried to deny Aragorn's identity as the true king of Gondor. I wish Will was in here for this reference. Our lives often claim, we have no king, we need no king. We're prone to focus on the idea that the king is in charge and decides how things are supposed to be and it's in our nature to buck against that. So we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be controlled. And so our, our focus is on this person who's making the rules that, and then telling us that we've broken them. And so we resist the idea of surrendering allegiance to a king. But consider what citizenship in God's kingdom entails. It's not just, hey, I've got rules in a way that needs to be followed and you've broken it. When we surrender to the allegiance of King Jesus we actually end up living the lives of flourishing because that's what God has designed for us. His ways really are better for us. And to top it all off, we end up inheriting the kingdom as co-heirs with Jesus. So it's not just a matter of, oh, we have a, a new boss and so we have to step in line and do what he says. He invites us into the family and he elevates us to royalty alongside Christ. Romans 8 says that if we're children of God, then we're heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ. We inherit all that Christ inherits. The author of Hebrews declares Jesus the heir of all things. That means that by faith, we surrender to Christ's kingship and authority, but also become heirs to all things with him. And if we follow a king, we represent that king. We're ambassadors for his kingdom. Our identity, purpose, and inheritance have all changed because of our allegiance and alignment with him. I remember at a friend's wedding a few years ago, uh, the father of the groom was speaking, I guess a toast or speech or something, and he spoke to his new daughter-in-law, and he said, You've got this last, you've got our last name on your jersey now, right? And he was telling her, You represent us, right? You represent our family now. And it wasn't just this like, hey, watch yourself, keep it in line because you represent our family. He was basically saying, you're one of us. So what is ours is yours. So not only do you represent us out in the world, but you wear it with pride and you know that everything that we have belongs to you. That's what God has called us to in surrendering to King Jesus. If you're in Christ, you wear that jersey, you wear that uniform, you represent Christ to the world. And so there is a sense of Watch your witness so that no one else stumbles. But there's also a sense of what's mine is yours. You step into the inheritance of Christ when you step into new life in him. This is why Christ is supreme. As I said, we'll dive deeper into the significance of the different aspects of his identity later. But today we need simply to consider, have you come to know God the Father Through his supreme prophet, the Son, who has made him known, who is the exact imprint, the image of the invisible. Have you gained access to the Father through the purification and blood of the supreme priest, Jesus, who laid down his life that we might live, shed his blood that we might be forgiven, one time for all time, a sufficient sacrifice, and then sat down because it was enough. And have you pledged your allegiance to and stepped into your inheritance with the supreme King Christ? If not, heed these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul quoting Psalms there. Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Remember, the work done to save you is finished. And it was all completed by Jesus. There is nothing that we contribute to our salvation but our sin. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God. And once we step into that life, we know God through the Son. We inherit the kingdom through the Son. We've been made acceptable to the Father Through the Son, he is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Jesus, what an amazing um, set of truths that we see just in these four verses. And we didn't even touch on the fact that it it mentions you as creator and, and sustainer and just another amazing aspect to who you are the supremacy and preeminence that is found in you. God, I pray that as we continue over the summer to dive into uh, what it means and what you have fulfilled and how you are the true and better version of so many that came before you, that it would give us an appreciation for the types and shadows that you uh, introduced to your people throughout history. God, I pray that it would give us again a deeper appreciation for the completion and fullness of these things that are found in Christ. God, I pray that we would walk in the truth of who we are in Christ. That we would realize that there's there's no more work to be done to save us, to make us clean, to to, to make us right before you. The work has been done by Christ Christ. And it's applied to us by faith. Remind us, God, that if we are in Christ by faith, that we, we represent Christ to the world. We are ambassadors. We are ministers of reconciliation. Our lives, our speech, our conduct, those things are a testimony to the world around us, to who you are and what you've done in our lives. But also, Lord, remind us and encourage us about the eternal inheritance that we have received every spiritual blessing that comes with knowing Christ. And so while this world crumbles around us, while this world may discourage and seem hopeless and dark, our anchor, our anchor in the waves, our anchor in the storm is knowing that we are yours forever, for all eternity, And not just saved from destruction, but blessed beyond measure with the full inheritance of your kingdom. God, may we walk with that powerful truth, the victory that you've secured for us. May we speak it and share it and love others with it as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.